All right, hello, everybody. Good to see you. I'm Luke. Uh, greetings to everyone at all of our campuses, Edgewood and Aberdeen, Abingdon. Everybody online, hello, Mountain Road. You're alive and awake today? Ready to go? All right, here we are, 2024, celebrating the 200th birthday of Mountain Christian Church. Can you believe it? And we're crossing this incredible milestone with the belief that there is more and better to come. More and better of what? Well, we started last week with something that is at the very heart of this church, our mission to make more and better disciples. But what else is there? What, what is the stuff that makes Mountain Mountain? What kind of a church is this? And all of us might be asking for ourselves, like, is this something that I want more of? Will this make me better? We're probably all assessing that. But there's also another question that everyone who's ever walked through the door has also asked themselves. It's not just, do I want more of what's here? It's, do they want more of me? Do I fit in here? Do I belong here? And we're thinking about that in all kinds of different situations, usually applying a simple eye test. Like you just look around, you see how people are dressed or what car they drive or the color of their skin or their age. Or maybe here it's where they sit or who they know or how they act or how their kids act or how they talk. That, that's how you know who belongs. That's how you distinguish insiders from outsiders. I did a wedding one time, and I don't remember the exact circumstances that led to this, but I was uh, substituting in as the officiant, so I didn't know a lot about what I was getting into. And I, I showed up as an amazing venue, and it was a small wedding, but everybody there was quite nicely dressed. And I found myself standing next to a guy, made some small talk. What's your name? What do you do? He said he was with a bank, and he said the name of the bank. And I recognized the name of the bank because I'd seen it on a really tall building downtown. I said, what's your role with the bank? He said, I'm the founder. <laughs> of course you are. You should probably know that or something. <laughs> so he began to tell me about his connections with the bride and groom and the other people that were there. And that's when I discovered that this was basically a gathering of C-suite executives who'd started more companies than I had fingers and toes. It took more than an eye test, but I quickly determined I don't think I fit in here. I'll just stay out of the way and try not to spill my drink on my JCPenney suit. <laughs> now, I've had it the other way too. I probably shouldn't say that, but I've been on the other side of things. I know I, I shouldn't say it, but I'm just saying. I've been at other weddings, for example, wearing that same JCPenney suit. And I was way overdressed. <laughs> and there was a voice inside my head trying to get me to believe it when it whispered, you're better than these people. And I suspect we all know what it's like to live under the influence of those kinds of social dynamics. We've thought about these things. We've sized others up. We've assessed ourselves. We've discerned the pecking order and the cliques and the camps and the clubs. And we've tried to carve out our place within all of that. And we may not be satisfied with how all of that has shaken out. But we, we know that's just how the world works. There are insiders and outsiders. High class and low class. Some make the team and get the parts and others don't. Some get promoted and others don't. Some are invited in and others aren't. And these categories, these uh, measurements, these lines of demarcation are not without consequence. No, they're pretty instrumental in defining uh, what you're worth, who you are, what you're good for, value, identity, purpose, 
We have seen how in every environment we're in, these factors are operating within us and among us to determine who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't, who's important, who's not. So anyone might ask the question, is that how this environment works? The stakes are higher here because of our belief that what's happening here isn't just happening on this plane, but God is involved here too. So if you don't fit in at a fancy party, you could probably find a way to live with that. But if you don't belong in the presence of God, well, then what does that mean for every other aspect of your life? Okay, so you don't get the job. You don't get promoted. You don't have the knowledge or the talent to get in there. But do you have what it takes to get in with God? That seems like a more serious question. And some are asking it today. It's an important thing to wrestle with, and we're going to do that today. And we're going to figure out uh, what kind of church this is, and who belongs, and what does God think about all of that. And the way we're going to do it is by immersing ourselves into the story of Jesus for a few moments, and then we're going to come up for air and hear from someone that I'm very much looking forward to introducing to you. Are you ready for that? All right. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take it out and turn to the book of Matthew, book of Matthew, it's about right there, first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And in chapter one, you might think, well, we were just here three weeks ago. We were celebrating the story of Jesus's birth. He, Christmas, there were maybe in-laws and cousins that came to your home to mark the moment that God came to make his home among us. Jesus is born, God in the flesh, king of kings, born in a king's palace. No, born outside. Not in the capital, not with fanfare. Shepherds welcomed him. That's what Luke tells us. They were already outside in more ways than one. Matthew 2, the the king of the land, in his palace, in the capital, hears about Jesus' birth. Does he go out to see him? No. Word about Jesus spreads through the whole capital. Do the people break out of their regular routine to go out and see Jesus, their long-awaited leader? No. Matthew 3, Jesus is now grown up, ready to go public. John the Baptist goes first to say the time has come and prepare the way. Where is he? Out in the wilderness. And this time, people do come out. And when John says, repent, in other words, change, there's a new king, you need a new routine for a new life. This is not the same old thing anymore. The surprising and overwhelming response is verse 6, confessing their sins, they came to him and were baptized in the Jordan River. We're not going to hide it, we're going to confess it. We'll tell the truth, we're a mess. And if this bath is a deep clean, we're in. Verse 7, but, contrast, the Pharisees and the Sadducees now show up. They had respectable lives, or so they had convinced themselves and everybody else. Our question about do we belong with God, do we fit in here, that was not a question for them. No, they're they're leaders, models, teachers. You want a good life, you go and do what they do. They're They're the example. Everyone knew that's the in crowd. But when John looks at them, that's not what he sees. Verse 7, he looks at them and says, you snakes. 
Who warned you to come out here? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you ain't out here because you think you need what's out here. You're here to judge. This is a confession and repentance zone. This is for people who tell the truth about themselves and change accordingly. You just want to lie to yourselves like that ancient snake, the father of lies. John the Baptist tells it like it is. And when God wanted to give us a preview of how the world would be ordered by King Jesus, he sent John out to the countryside to get things started. Matthew 4, camera shifts to Jesus. And he shows up and says the exact same thing. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's time for me to set up a new kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to reveal what that looks like. And then the rest of the Gospel of Matthew unfolds and the other books that wrote about Jesus unfold to show us answers to our questions about who's in, who's important, who belongs in this new reality that Jesus is creating. Why did people write down the Jesus story? Well, I mean, probably because, you know, he rose from the dead and nobody else in history had ever done that before. We should record that. But even before the dramatic ending where the script flips from death to life, way back at the beginning, everything that we thought we knew about how things worked is being upended right from the get-go. Now, by the end of Matthew 4, Jesus has gone viral. Somebody, let's write this down. He was teaching, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom, and healing. As a result, final verse of Matthew chapter 4 says, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's the ten cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they all followed him. Now, who's in the crowd? What kind of following is Jesus gathering to build momentum for his movement? It's the Biden crowd? Trump crowd? Taylor Swift crowd? Olympians, Hollywood A-list, according to Matthew 4, some fishermen from out at the docks, and then verse 24, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. Those are the kinds of people that are welcomed to belong around Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus the King. Matthew 5, Jesus addresses the crowd. And he's like, hashtag stay blessed, all you happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, he knows these people. He knows their past. He knows their reputation, the broken mess of their lives. He's placed his hand on their shoulder. He's looked them in the eye. And now he says, blessed are who? Here's the list. The poor in spirit, mourners, meek, starved for justice, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, oppressed, persecuted people. That's the group that Jesus is spending the afternoon with. He could be in the capital schmoozing the power brokers, but instead he's out here with the broken. He's got labels for this crowd. Yeah, he puts them in their place. Oh, oh it's not a low place. He's not demoting or demeaning them. No, he says, I could sure use people like you. You are the salt of the earth. Season the world so that all can taste life in my kingdom. You are the light of the world. Shine so that what's good about God can be seen by everyone. 
Jesus goes on in this most famous of speeches, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he calls out those insiders who supposedly talk right, act right, pray right. He's not impressed by how impressed they are with who they impress. No, he says God sees the heart. God sees what's true. If only you could see it too. Matthew 8, speech over. First one to Jesus, a leper, a a cast off, a way outsider. Even the rejects thought the lepers were rejects. Not Jesus. Be clean. You're an insider now. And episode after episode, this kind of thing keeps happening. The foreigners, those with blood on their hands, the sick, the weak, those so evil they're possessed by it. What do you do with those kind of people? You send them out, get them away, kick them to the curb. Jesus says, bring them here. Matthew 9 and verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. For they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder if there are any harassed and helpless in this crowd. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out uneducated fishermen, former scoundrels and future scoundrels, Judas. He sends them out with his same compassion and power with the purpose of helping and healing those lost sheep. That's who he sends. And in Matthew 11, where we'll stop for today, Jesus is reflecting on all that has been happening since he has become God in the flesh on earth. What's been going on? 11 verse 5, well, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus then goes on to be critical of those who criticize him for being a friend of sinners and to be critical of those who have seen everything that has unfolded to this point but yet refuse to, what's the word? Repent. If you can't be friends with sinners and you can't be honest about your own sin and change what you need to change, well, then I got nothing for you. But if you are fed up with the way things work and the labels and the pecking order and the holy huddles and the posturing and the belittling and the self-righteous condemnation and how all that is operating within you and around you and it's wearing you out with lies about how good you are or how bad you are or how important you are or how unworthy you are to belong in the presence of God and God's people, well then, come to me, Jesus says. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We could keep going. This is what you see in the first 11 chapters of our founding document, the New Testament. We 
mountain are a New Testament church. And that's why we can't be anything other than broken people helping broken people by the love and power of Jesus. This is how the Jesus movement begins. Outsiders become insiders. Broken are made whole to claim a new identity, a new purpose. We're part of this movement. Have we always reflected it well? No. Do we sometimes pretend like we ain't broken or we are better than others? Yes. And when we do, Jesus himself critiques us. In response, we tell the truth about that, own it, and change accordingly. Confession and repentance. Key ingredients to a movement of broken people helping broken people. I was blessed uh, last fall to hear Kate Denny tell her story. Kate's part of this church, and she's uh, a model of what a genuine follower of Jesus looks like. I'm going to invite her out right now. Kate, are you still here? Come on out. Kate Denny, please welcome Kate to the stage. I'm still here. You're still here. You're ready to go. not run away. All right. Blessings to you. (laughs) Hello, church. Morning. I'm a grateful sinner in recovery who's been saved by the grace of God. My name is Kate. Periodically, I'm asked to share my testimony, and I do my best to say yes. Isaiah 6, 8 reads, Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? I said, I am here. Send me. So let me pray. Dear Father God, I pray that you will use me today to help someone listening to my story. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here together in your presence. Lord, please guide my words and thoughts so that I can testify about your love and grace with all the honor and glory that you show me every minute of every day. Amen. I'm a believer in recovery. I struggle with alcohol addiction, codependency, self-harm, and pride. Before recovery, my life was insane. I struggled with issues of substance abuse, deceit, pride, and codependency for as long as I can remember. I was a prisoner in my own mind and body. I was in a constant state of fight, flight, or freeze. And I was in a constant cycle of guilt, shame, pride, repeat, for as long as I can remember. My story starts in a family where I was surrounded by loving and caring addicts and enablers, and some who are both, I'm a parent, a wife, and a teacher, so I fully understand how often mistakes are made with the best intentions in mind. But as a curious and rebellious child and teenager, I did not know how to navigate that. I was taught and internalized that if I lived a healthy and productive life, if I worked hard enough at it, applied the right amount of willpower, in other words, if I controlled it all enough, I wouldn't suffer. The opposite, of course, then meant that if I failed, it was because I didn't try hard enough or I wasn't strong enough and I needed to apply myself more. I needed to control more. So what did that look like? In childhood and adolescence, it meant joining every sport, club, theatrical production, babysitting, fundraising, and achieving in school. 
It meant working hard and playing hard to keep up with the pressures and the lifestyle. I found myself in a repeating destructive pattern that was always the same and completely unsustainable. The circumstances through my life were different, but the pattern always remained the same. I would create a life for myself, a job, a home, a network of friends, and then I would destroy it through lying, cheating, stealing, and recklessness. Build it all up just to tear it all down. I weeded out very quickly the people who were going to stand up to me or call me out on my nonsense. I was completely untrustworthy. In fact, I could barely distinguish my, distinguish my false reality from the reality, from real, from what was, I didn't know what was real anymore. And because I was a liar and a gossip and a cheat, I assumed you were too. So I treated you accordingly. I was unreliable, disloyal, and I would coerce and conjure up a reality and squeeze that lie into my life. I really didn't care about anyone that I stepped on along my way or the pain and heartache I left in my wake. When I look back at my most dysfunctional period of my addiction, I know that God was keeping me alive. He was keeping me alive when I really wasn't working very hard at trying to stay alive. I was a flawed and broken person who was trying to control it and keep it all together on my own. Romans 7, 18 reads, I know that nothing good lies in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. My life changes were very gradual, and my surrender was a slow, gradual release and continues to be a daily struggle. Sometimes when people reflect on their recovery journey, they look back and think about when they were first rebellious, but for me, I don't remember a time I wasn't rebellious, and my parents could testify to that. Um, when I was small, my mom would say, I'm gonna wash your mouth out with soap, uh, you know, when I was being fresh or talking back. It was the 70s, so we, that's, you know, wash your mouth out with soap. And I would say to her, good, I like soap, and then I would voluntarily eat the soap on my own, um, and I thought she was making that up till I had my own children, and now I have five kids of my own, and like two, maybe three of them would totally spite eat soap. So I believe her. And in third grade, I remember sneaking into the woods, lighting fires outside the elementary school with matches my friends had stolen from their parents. At 14, my boyfriend robbed a house, stole a car, and gave me the loot as a gift for our six-month anniversary, which was so romantic. Yeah. <laughs> My life continued on that path with a series of bad choices, near-death experiences, and a wake of hurt and chaos in my path, that I left in my path. The Lord, being a merciful God, has revealed my shortcomings to me in teeny tiny stages, and usually through the women he has put in my life. Early in life, the Lord gifted me with a curious, a curious and searching heart. He gave me the tiniest bit of humility, just enough for me to realize the people around me that had something to teach me, and the tiniest bit of patience just to shut up long enough to listen. Ephesians 4.15, love should always make us tell the truth. Then we will grow in every way and be more like Christ the head. Around springtime of 2004, at the height of my reckless behavior, a woman that I like to call one of my angels spoke truth in love. Without an ounce of judgment or condemnation, she told me that if I wanted different results from my life, I needed to behave differently. And I was like, 
what? Wait, me? Like, this is not my fault. It's not my fault my boyfriend's a loser. It's not my fault I crashed my drunk into a pillar in my parking garage. Uh, it's not my fault my parents don't know how to have a good time and don't want me getting wasted at their house. And if I could just speak for a minute to survivors of abuse, when I'm talking about owning up to and taking responsibility for my behavior, I am not talking about cases of abuse or situations. If you've been assaulted or have survived physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, you are not responsible for the abuse that you survived. Celebrate Recovery literature reads, we understand that the persons who are abused are responsible for the abusive acts committed against us. We will not accept the guilt and shame resulting from those abusive acts, period. New sentence, for everything else, yeah, we have to own it. Shortly after that conversation with my friend, I went to my cousin's wedding. My friend had planted a seed calling me out on my nonsense, and I was just patient and humble enough not to reject outright her advice. At my cousin's wedding, a serious but funny, polite but lighthearted young man asked me to dance. Well, this young man and I danced the night away, and when he told me he had waited his whole life to meet his wife, instead of laughing in his face, instead of saying, dude, you're 27, how much waiting could that have been? Instead of my usual response of rejecting his honesty and openness, I did something different. I gave something healthy and wholesome a chance. And 19 years later, 18 years of marriage, five kids, four dogs, three cats, we're still going strong, and last summer we celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary. <laughs> I wanted a different result, so I did something different. I chose something and someone healthy and dependable. I danced with that young man, and I ran to his honesty, his promises, and his strength. And for the first time in my life, I took a hard look at my role in the outcomes of my life. I wanted something different, and I started making different choices. Now, that was the start of me living the life that Jesus had called me to live, but I had a very long way to go. Years later, I was struggling with infertility that was exasperating my depression. Most of my adult life, I had suffered from moderate, sometimes very severe depression. When my husband and I were trying to grow our family, I had several miscarriages. I was un completely unprepared to deal with the loss and pain of miscarriage and infertility. During this time, I was quitting drugs, cigarettes, and drinking cold turkey. Drugs and alcohol were the only thing I knew how to do to deal with pain. And without them, I felt hopelessness and despair. I felt like I didn't want to live. Another one of my women I call my angels invited me to come to a mom's group here at Mountain. And then I started coming here to church. At first, I attended casually for a few months, and then one day in church, the Holy Spirit hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was surrounded by a warm glow of light, relief, and peace that I'd never experienced before in my life. At the time, I was in a very dark depression. I was addicted to medication and struggling with fertility, and at that moment, I had a spiritual experience that words can barely describe. 
At the time, Rick and I had one child, but we wanted more. We wanted a big family, and I remember crying out to the Lord, you want me to be the mother of a big family, so why do you keep taking my babies? And the Lord put on my heart, says who? Again, I was like, what? Is that your will or is that mine? It was so clear that I was trying to force my will on God rather than listening to his will for my life. During worship, I was crying out to God to relieve me from my pain, and right then and there, he gave me the relief I was praying for. With my hands lifted in surrender, I felt the Holy Spirit fill me with peace and comfort, and I've been walking with Jesus ever since, often collapsing into his arms. After I found Jesus, I immediately invited him in and accepted him as my savior. Years went by and I continued to walk with Christ and I continued to have babies. Three, in fact, in three years. During this time, I had Jesus and I had long periods of sobriety, but my alcoholism, my perfectionism, my codependency, in short, my disease, was in the parking lot doing push-ups, getting stronger and stronger. I knew I was an alcoholic at that point, but I still believed that willpower and my good intentions could control it. When I had my fourth baby in seven years and was overwhelmed and still had very few coping skills, my life began to spiral out of control again, but this time I was bringing down my husband and my small children with me. It just felt like a losing battle, and I didn't, but I didn't know a way out, and my disease had convinced me that I could not do life without alcohol, that I could not change my behavior. Well, that was true. I could, wasn't stronger than my disease, but Jesus was and always will be. Galatians 6, 8, if you follow your selfish desires, you will harvest destruction, but if you follow the Spirit, you will, you will harvest eternal life. In recovery, we're taught to tell our story in three parts, how it was, what changed, and how it is now. Well, now it is not always easy, but I always know that I'm doing life with Jesus. On September 8th, 2014, addiction claimed the life of my beloved uncle. He was the closest thing I had to a big brother. At the end of his life, he was homeless, he was separated from his family, and he died on his mother's living room floor. He was 53 years old and left behind two teenage daughters. I was afraid to do life without alcohol, but when Kevin died, I was more afraid of losing everything like he had. I immediately quit drinking and started attending Celebrate Recovery. As I started spending more time in recovery, at Celebrate Recovery, I would hear people say that they were grateful addicts in recovery or a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with fill in the blank. And I thought to myself, these people are crazy. I still think we're all crazy, but <laughs> I get it now. And it, I, I was like, this has to be nonsense. Who could be grateful about this? But I knew Christ, and I was walking with Christ. And for several years at that point, I knew the overwhelming and freeing power of his love. I had been set free from bondage when I accepted Christ, and I knew in my heart that he was waiting for me to surrender that last part of my life, to surrender my addiction Before recovery, even though I was walking with Christ, there was a piece of my life that I refused to surrender, and that was my addiction. 
It felt too painful to separate from. And when I did, when I finally did surrender that part of my life, I felt so free. I also felt closer to God, like a wedge had been removed, and the floodgates of mercy and grace were open. Today I'm free to sit in my pain. Life can definitely be uncomfortable and hard. Life on its best day is messy and challenging. But I have Christ alongside me always. I don't have to do it on my own. No amount of willpower could control my drinking. The only way that I am free to be sober today is because of the power of Jesus Christ, because of my willingness to try and keep trying to stay out of his way, to surrender again and again to his will for my life. Romans 8.35. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, suffering, hard times, or hunger? Can nakedness or danger and death? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any power, height or depth, or anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So now, because of Jesus, I have 19 years of fidelity to my partner, a restored relationship with my family of origin, I have 13 years with Jesus as my Savior, and on September 8, 2023, I celebrated nine years free from alcohol and drugs. Through having a sponsor and working the steps, I've been able to identify my resentments and release them. I'm no longer deceitful and dishonest with others, but most importantly, with myself. My children have no memory of me drunk. I am present and available both physically and emotionally to my children while they are still young. I'm a trustworthy and reliable friend and community member. I can say no when I need to, and I can be counted on even when I want to say no, when I say yes, like standing up here with you folks. (laughs) Finally, I don't have to run. I can sit in my discomfort, or I can do something about it all with, a dis- with discernment from Jesus. And when I tell you that every single first step in every area of surrender, I was kicking and screaming like a tantruming toddler. But each time I said yes, and each time I usually said yes if you say so. Accepting Jesus as my savior was a welcome relief and, a, and I was much less cooperative about accepting him as my Lord. Earlier, I said the Lord had been a merciful God and has revealed my shortcomings to me in teeny tiny stages. So although I have separation from drugs and alcohol, it turns out I'm not done. In Celebrate Recovery, we have a saying that everyone falls into two categories, those in recovery and those in denial. I don't know what your redemption story is, if maybe a chapter or two have been written, or maybe you have the whole book in front of you to write. When I look back at my life, honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. However, I do wish I realized sooner that I didn't have to do, I didn't have to fix everything, and I wish I knew I didn't have to do it on my own. I don't know what your current struggle is, but I do know and I can reassure you that you are not alone. 
And if Jesus can restore me to sanity, <laughs> to a healthy, functioning wife and mother, then anything is possible. Thank you for letting me share. Is he back? <laughs> yes. He's back. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing that, uh, for having the courage to be honest, for modeling what it looks like to just tell the truth, and also having the courage to change. And sometimes those changes don't come quite immediately. And they don't come, like you said, they don't come by pulling ourselves up our own bootstraps or controlling everything. They come by surrender to Jesus. And as a result, there is forgiveness. And whole new worlds of opportunity open up for us, though wounded as we are, for us to be wounded healers in Jesus' name. Broken people helping broken people. Uh, you mentioned Celebrate Recovery. Mm -hmm. That is when? Mondays in Aberdeen at the Aberdeen campus and Fridays right here at Mountain Road. Might be an opportunity, a uh, good next step for some of us. Also the care groups, we talked about them earlier. Highlighting them in particular because I think when we are experiencing pain, um, struggling through some stuff, it feels like we are alone. Like you mentioned, it can be hard to talk about that. And care groups are just designed to create a safe space, a place of connection, opportunities to um, not only share, but then chances for healing and progress to be made. It's interesting, Jesus somehow conveyed to other people that he was safe to talk to about your junk, that you can trust me, we can be real, and I can help you. And as Jesus followers, care groups are simply a way that we're trying to reproduce that and create a place where we can be honest about whether it's trauma or grief or anxiety or some other kind of struggle, we can do that together. So go online, stop outside, and see someone at all of our campuses. Wherever you're at today, Jesus knows where you've come from, he knows your past, knows your reputation, knows the messes that you've made. And I pray that you would feel his hand on your shoulder, maybe literally in the form of a hand of someone in this church on your shoulder, looking you in the eye and saying, you belong here, you're welcome here. That's what kind of church we are. You don't get in with God by talent or skill or knowledge or status. It's only by God's grace that we get to be insiders. Broken people made whole, becoming insiders so that we could reach out and help more outsiders become insiders. Broken people helping broken people. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us and shown your grace among us. Thank you for welcoming us, for loving us. We're not always sure why you do love us, but we sure are glad that you do. In spite of the things that we're not proud of, the mistakes that we have made and the checkered past and even the realities that we find ourselves in the present. We reach out to you, we say, Lord, we need you, and we say, Lord, thank you for loving us and drawing us to be with yourself. Let us continue to find hope and healing in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.